This morning we're going to read from verse 31 to 46. Verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then shall the king say unto those on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungry, and fed thee? Or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in? Or naked, and clothed thee? Or when did we see you sick, and in prison, and came unto you? And the king shall answer, and say unto them, Truly I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Truly I say unto you, inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal." Let's pray. Father, as we turn now to your word, knowing that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear this morning uh, the words of your Son, spoken so long ago and as relevant today as ever. We pray that you would give us ears to, under, to hear, minds to understand, that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit as we uh, turn our thoughts now to this passage that we just read. Help us to understand and realize what it is that you are saying and what will happen in the future. Lord, we thank you for your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to the end of the Olivet Discourse, the concluding remarks of Jesus in his Olivet Discourse. You will uh, remember that the Olivet Discourse is the teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, right before his betrayal and his crucifixion. The disciples asked Jesus uh, some questions regarding a statement that he made about the destruction of the temple. And the Olivet Discourse in the Gospel of Matthew takes up chapters 24 and 25. It's all about what we call eschatology. It's all about the end. What's going to happen? 
before Jesus returns, what will be the signs of his coming. And it's controversial because it's hard for Christians sometimes to even agree on what Jesus uh, meant when he said these things. It's complex, but it's by no means impossible. And we ought as Christians to pay careful attention to what Jesus said here in this discourse. Our attitude as Christians toward eschatology, eschatology should not be what I often hear. And that is, well, it's end times, just speculation. No one can know anything about the end times, so we might as well just not even think about it. We might as well not even study it. That's not true. It's in the Word of God for a reason. It's in many places in Scripture, and it's for us as Christians to pay careful attention to. Complex, but not impossible. And in the Olivet Discourse, as we've been studying it here at church for the last uh, several weeks, we realize that the Olivet Discourse is really, in Matthew, broken into two sections. The first section, Jesus answers the disciples' questions. They ask him about the signs of his coming and the end of the age and about the timing when the temple will be destroyed. And Jesus answers those questions. He answers both of those questions. Jesus tells us that we don't know the day of his coming, but he gives us signs to watch for so that we won't be caught unawares. We won't be caught surprise. We can know and be prepared for his coming. And the second section of the Olivet Discourse is the most important section. Because a person can know that Jesus is coming and even be watching for the signs of his coming and yet not be prepared for when Jesus comes. Okay, I know he's coming and look, I see all the signs he's about to come. This is exciting. And I suspect that there might be people in the end that will be expecting Jesus to come back. They've seen the signs and when he comes, They'll be taken away, as it says, or they'll be, they'll be punished and destroyed because they're not prepared. And so this second section in the Olivet Discourse is most important. And what it teaches us is preparation for his coming. Because what's going to happen when Jesus comes back? Jesus tells us over and over and over again, this is what you're to understand. When the Son of Man returns, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a separation between the righteous and the unrighteous. That's the most important thing that you need to know. If you don't know anything else, that's what you need to know. When he comes back, the wheat and the tares will be separated. The bad fish from the good fish will be separated. The righteous from the unrighteous will be separated, and you need to be prepared for that. That is the main point of this second section of the Olivet Discourse. Jesus gives us four parables, as we've already looked at, Four parables and comments on this over and over and over again. Every parable has the same lesson. Christ's coming can either be good for you or it could be bad for you, depending on whether you're prepared for it. This is the lesson of the parable of the thief, the parable of the servant, of the two servants in Matthew 24, the parable of the ten virgins, and then the parable of the talents in Matthew 24. The coming of Christ will be good or bad depending on whether you're prepared. And so since we know that his coming means separation from, for the, from, uh, of, the un, of the unrighteous from the righteous, how then are we to be prepared for that? What does that mean for us? Does it mean we should go buy a whole bunch of craft, uh, you know, craft dinner, macaroni and cheese, a whole bunch of ketchup and guns and ammo and just stock up and get ready for the coming of Christ? <laughs> does it mean we just go literally buy oil? How do we prepare for the coming of Christ if it's about the separation of the unrighteous from the righteous? The preparation that we need is to be found righteous on that day. We sing a lot of songs about that, don't we? 
as we sang even today, bold I approach your eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. How do we approach it boldly? Because we're clothed in righteousness divine, right? That's how we approach it boldly. Or in the song, uh, All Other Ground is Sinking Sand, when he shall come with, with trumpet sound, O may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. We must be faultless on that day. And how are you going to be faultless on that day? Because a person could read this and say, okay, I've got to get ready for this. I've got to be righteous. That means I've got to stop all my sins. That means I've got to keep the commandments, follow the law, do everything I can to be found faultless on that day by my own works and by my own obedience. And what we declare as Christians is that that is not the way to be ready on that day. That is not the way to be righteous. Righteousness does not come through our own obedience to the law. Otherwise, Christ died for nothing. We're righteous on that day through faith in Jesus Christ, found righteous and faultless in Christ on that day, trusting not in ourselves, but in what he has done for us on the cross. And as these parables show us, this requires wisdom and adherence to God's instructions. Right? That's what we've... That's what, Uh, the two parables that preceded our section this morning are emphasizing. You need to have wisdom. You need to realize, you know what? Jesus is coming to separate the righteous from the unrighteous and I'm not righteous by my works. I need to think about this. I need to take heed to God's word. I need to adhere to the instructions. And what are the instructions? Jesus taught it. The prophets taught it. John the Baptist taught it. The apostles taught it. The instructions are that God requires moral perfection and will settle for nothing less. And that only through the death of Christ for our sins, can we be righteous. That's the instructions that we adhere to. God commands us to believe. God commands us to repent from our dead works, to change our minds about how we're right with God, and to believe the gospel. These are his instructions. And we listen to him, and we believe, and therefore you can approach the throne boldly. Christians have nothing to be afraid of the second coming at all. Nothing to be afraid of Judgment Day because we know how we are righteous and how we are not. We know how God is going to judge and we know the gift that he's provided for us. And so there's nothing to fear. His love has cast out our fear. Amen? Jesus' final remarks now is what we're looking at in this section that we read. The last part of the Olivet Discourse. And it's connected to everything that has gone before. And surprise, surprise, what's it all about? The section that we just read this morning. The separation of what? The righteous from the unrighteous. That shouldn't be a surprise now. We should be familiar with this theme. At the second coming of Christ, there'll be a separation of the unrighteous from the righteous. Although this time, we're not dealing with a parable. Jesus is now making explicit what has been implicit in all the parables. This is not a parable. We often call it the parable of the sheep and the goats, and that's actually uh, misleading. It's not a parable of the sheep and the goats. Well, to be fair, there is a parabolic element in this last section. If you look with me at verse 32 and 33, it says, He shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He shall set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. It is true that's a parabolic element, but that's a parabolic element within a greater whole that's not a parable. Okay, He just kind of throws that in there. It's going to be like when a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. So we might call it the parable of the sheep and the goats, 
but what we should rather call it is the judgment of the nations or the separation of the righteous from the unrighteous at his second coming. This is real. This is going to actually happen as Jesus says it will. And this should blow our minds. Think about it. What we just read here this morning should blow our minds, shouldn't it? How do we read this casually? When the Son of Man returns in His glory, He's going to sit upon the throne and all the nations will be gathered and He'll divide them like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And the end of all this, of course, is eternal life or eternal punishment. Mind-blowing. Charles Erdman writes this about this section. The New Testament contains no scene of more impressive majesty than this which is sketched by the pen of Matthew alone. It is peculiarly in harmony with the purpose of his gospel. He is writing the story of the king. And here alone is the picture of the Son of Man seated on the throne of his glory and determining who among all the nations of the world can enter and who is to be excluded from his heavenly kingdom. It's an impressive and staggering picture that we have here. Let's turn our attention now to the details of this section. Verse 31, look with me please. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him. This is clearly referring to the second coming of Christ that we've been examining over the last uh, several weeks. What, what have we been going over? When, what will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus talks about the coming of the Son of Man, doesn't he? Over and over and over again in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. He uses that phrase, the coming of the Son of Man. And so now we have details on what that coming that he's been talking about is going to look like. Then Jesus says, shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Now this is not a new thought only to be found in the Olivet Discourse. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16 and look at verse 27. Matthew 16, verse 27. Jesus has already been saying these things. Verse 27. Matthew 16, 27, he says, The Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, And then shall he reward every man according to his works. He's going to give back according to what everyone has done. Jesus has already said this. Turn ahead with me to Matthew chapter 19. And look at verse 28 and 29. Matthew 19. Jesus says, Truly I say unto you, you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall, what? Sit on the throne of his glory. You also shall sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone that has forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit eternal life. So Jesus has already mentioned that he is coming to sit upon the throne of his glory and give to men back what they have done. Christ reigning as king of kings is what it means that he'll sit upon the throne of his glory. 
Christ reigning over all of the earth as king. And this is an old expectation. This isn't something, when Jesus said that, when the the Son of Man comes, he'll sit on the throne and and reign and gather the nations. This isn't a, a new or novel idea. This is an old expectation. You'll remember Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Uh, where it talks about a son is given unto us. You'll remember that the prophets speak about this very thing. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, or the empire shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David, upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So this was an expectation in Israel. Uh, Those who were studying the prophecies of the Messiah knew that the Messiah was coming to sit upon the throne of David and to reign and his kingdom would have no limits. That's what the prophecy in Isaiah is all about. And notice in Isaiah chapter 9 that the blessing comes through this king reigning. The peace that the world is looking for, that the world is groaning for, comes through the rule of this king. Only when the Messiah reigns will peace rule in the earth. And this, brothers and sisters, idea of the king reigning and peace coming through the king is not an afterthought in God's mind. This is the central theme of the Bible. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, uh, and you can turn there with me, you'll see how this is not an afterthought at all. Jesus as king is no afterthought. It's not like, well, here's all the things about Jesus, and, and oh, by the way, he's a king. By the way, he's going to reign. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, this is how Matthew starts the gospel, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David unto the carrying away into, the ba- into Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. None of that is coincidental. When God chose Abraham, when God chose Abraham out from among the nations, and when God chose David to be king, Jesus was on his mind. When God chose Abraham, it was not an afterthought that he'd choose David, and it was not an afterthought that Jesus would come and reign. This is the central theme. God told Abraham that I'm going to bring a blessing through you, and it's the blessing we see comes through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, reigning on the throne. This is the blessing that will bless all the families of the earth. So we see in the book of, and you can see this theme of the king throughout the whole Bible. There's prophecies in the book of Genesis about the king reigning. Jacob prophesies over his sons and speaks about the scepter of Judah. In the book of Numbers, you have Balaam, the heathen prophet, prophesying about the scepter that will come out of Jacob and who will rule. And then, as you go on from the earliest prophecies, you see the book of Judges and Ruth. And what do we see in the book of Judges and Ruth? What's the purpose of those books? We see in the book of Judges that without a king, Israel is a great mess, right? That's how the book of Judges ends. In those days, everyone was doing whatever they wanted. There was no rule. There was no ruler in Israel. There was no king. And then the next book, Ruth, 
is all about what? What is the book of Ruth in the Bible for? Is it just a nice love story? Is that all the book of Ruth is? Just throw it in there for the ladies, <laughs> right? No. The book of Ruth is all about King David. It's all about David's uh, genealogy. David's, uh, the messianic line followed through Abraham. Yes, through a Gentile even. But it's about the story of David. And then why do you think the Bible includes 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, and 1st, 2nd Chronicles? Is it just because God says, hey, you know, this is really interesting national history for everybody. You know? This is just, this is just national, national history for everybody. Do you know that there's a huge section in our Old Testament that's just about kings? Saul, David, kings. And then it repeats it in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Why is there such a focus on kings in the Bible? Brothers and sisters, it's not just interesting nationalistic history that we have it in the Bible. It's the story of the coming king. This is what it's all about. And then we come to the prophets. And the prophets, of course, speak about the coming king who's going to reign and bring blessing to the whole earth through this king that's going to come. And so in Jesus' day, Israel was indeed hoping for a king. That was the, that's, that's the conflict we see in the Gospels, isn't it? Are you a king? We have no king but Caesar. Israel was hoping for the Messiah to come and reign, but they didn't understand the nature of the reign of Christ the King. See, the Jews in Jesus' day thought that we must first obey the law as a nation. We must fulfill the commandments of God. And when we do that, then the Messiah is going to come to the throne that we've prepared for him, and he's going to reign, and, and the blessing of righteousness, they would use these words, and peace is going to flow to all the world. When Israel finally gets it right, then their king will come and, and make, it, uh, make it a blessing for the entire nations and families of the world. That's what Israel was thinking, and you can hear the exact same thing today. If you want to go visit a Jewish synagogue today, you'll hear the same thing. The rabbis will speak about this thing. They'll say, you know what, guys? The Messiah is waiting for us to just get our act together and keep the commandments, and when he comes, when Israel gets it right, he'll come, and then the world will be blessed. Just like the prophets have said. They didn't understand the nature of the king, and they still don't. And turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 23. I'd like to just show you one verse that talks about the nature of the king. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6. We, God's people, understand the nature of the king. Verse 5, Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Look, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. And in his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, and this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord our Righteousness. You see, it's not about us becoming righteous in and of ourselves and establishing our own righteousness, and then the king comes. It's about the king himself being our righteousness. Isn't that amazing? It's about the king himself coming and bringing righteousness for us. 
And when Jesus died upon the cross, they put over his cross his crime. And his crime was king of the Jews. King of the Jews. A true statement, was it not? And at that moment, the king was dying on the cross, but not only for Israel, but for all the world. And it's through his death on the cross that we become righteous. Amen? And through righteousness, peace and blessing comes to us. Amen? Because peace does depend on righteousness, but righteousness does not depend on us, thankfully. Righteousness depends upon him. When he died on the cross, he took the sins of the world for all of us like sheep have gone astray. All of us have turned to our own, our own way and the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And on the cross, when Jesus died, he dealt with our sins. And if your sins are gone, brothers and sisters, if God does not see your sins, what does he then see? He sees righteousness. He sees righteousness. He doesn't look at you and say, hey, this person is guilty of breaking the greatest commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind strength. Now, without Christ, God looks at you and says, I do see that you're guilty of this. But if that's gone, and he doesn't see you as guilty of that, then he sees you as one who does love him with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the same with your neighbor as yourself. God looks at you as blameless. You're not just a blank slate. You're a full slate of righteousness when he looks at you because of Jesus who takes away our sins and our failures and our disobediences and our unrighteousness. On the cross, he brought in that righteousness for us and for all who will believe and put their trust in him. Isn't that wonderful? That's what it's all about. That is what his kingship is all about. Jesus didn't just put down the physical enemies of Israel and the world. He put down sin and death. Victory has been achieved at the cross. In Jesus' first coming, he conquered sin and death and achieved that victory. And all we, all we now await is not for uh, victory to be accomplished, but for just resolution to come. Just like we talked about several weeks ago about the story. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and then there's an end. The beginning God created and we all God created the world and we all sinned against him and brought in unrighteousness. The middle of the story, Jesus dies for us and brings in victory and defeats sin and death. And the end of the story is the resolution when Jesus comes and establishes that peace that he purchased at the cross for all the world. Today we wait for his coming. We wait not for him to die but for him to come and rule as the righteous, peace-bringing King of Kings. Look at verse 32. When the Son of Man shall come. Back in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, verse 32. Before him shall be gathered all nations. Now just take that in for a moment. Think about the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. Because at a future time when he comes, all the nations will be gathered before him. Isn't that an amazing authority? Try gathering all the nations now. <laughs> it's pretty difficult. That means he has supreme authority over all and the power to judge. All the nations, brothers and sisters, everybody is coming before him. Now Jesus Christ is despised, but then every knee will bow before him. And he's going to judge them. Right now, religion is thought of as a private matter. Religion is thought, don't, don't impose your religion on me. 
everyone can believe what they want and just keep it behind closed doors. You know, we don't talk about politics and religion at the dinner table. But then religion will no longer be a private matter. Religion will be a public matter. All the earth will be involved. Everyone will be judged by Jesus Christ. It says that he will separate them. Them refers to the individuals. All scholars agree that the them isn't referring to the nations, as if uh, he gathers all the nations and then separates the nations. Afghanistan, you go over here. Russia, you go over here. Germany, you go over here. It's not saying that. He's going to gather all the nations, but separate the individuals. And that's clearly brought out in the gender of the Greek. And all scholars point, point this out. He'll gather, he'll gather the nations and separate the individuals one from another. And this is the parabolic part of, the, of this section, as I've said. As a shepherd, he will do this. The point is that he's going to separate men, the unrighteous from the unrighteous. We're not to press this, parab- this parabolic statement to say, well, a shepherd will separate the sheep and the goats with a big staff, so he's going to have a big staff on that day. We're not supposed to push those kind of details. The point here is that he's going to separate, not how he's going to separate. And this is important because one might say, well, how do you harmonize this section with what we've been looking at before, right? What we've been looking at before is that when Jesus returns, the angels are going to come with him and he's going to send his angels to go gather his elect. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells us that when Jesus is coming, the dead in Christ are going to rise and we that are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the air to meet the Lord in the clouds and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And so someone might ask, well, it seems like Jesus and the apostles have been saying that God gathers his elect to himself before he sits down on the throne, before he gathers all the nations. And the point here is that This is going to happen, but Jesus isn't giving an exhaustive and neat and tidy outline of the events. He's speaking in general at this point in this section. The point is not, here's how it's all going to play out neat and tidy, but his point in this section is to discuss who enters into life and who doesn't, why and why not. But if you'd like me to take a stab at harmonization, I will. This is how I understand it. Christ is going to come and when he appears in the sky, he's going to gather his elect to himself in the air. That's when we'll be gathered to Christ. And then when he comes and sits on his throne, he's going to gather the nations. So he's going to gather his elect and then he's going to gather the nations. And then he's going to place the elect on his right hand when he sits there on the throne and he's going to place his non-elect on his left. And then he's going to speak to one group and then he's going to speak to another And that's perfectly harmonious here. But Jesus isn't drawing attention to those details. He wants us to think about what that judgment will be about. The main point here is that there will be a separation. And how many categories are there of people? Two? Two. There will be a separation and there's only two categories that you as an individual person will fall into and there's no middle ground. And this is all that matters. Whether you are a sheep or whether you are a goat. That's it. Two categories. Famous men will be goats and some will be sheep. Athletes, some will be goats and some will be sheep. Singers, presidents, kings, servants, toilet cleaners, black people, white people, it doesn't matter who you are, it's only going to be one thing or the other. There's going to be one group that's full of famous people and not famous people. 
black people, white people, every kind of race, every kind of job, every kind of intelligence, they're all going to be over there in one group or in the other. You see, today men separate themselves over all sorts of things, don't they? But this is the only real separation that exists in God's mind. Isn't that interesting? We think, oh, I'm just going to hang out with my own particular group. Well, let's broaden our horizons here, brothers and sisters. Our group is the righteous for Christians. It doesn't matter how famous you are or how not famous you are. We are in this together and we should see each other, see each other like that, right? We're in this together if we're Christians. Let's not artificially divide ourselves with other things. It's sad that there still exists in our country even some churches that would call themselves white churches only or black churches only. That's not correct. Because on that day, all the sheep are going to be on one side and all the goats are going to be on the other, right? Those artificial things should not divide us. They won't divide us then. They should not divide us now. So ask yourself, do you see people as either righteous or unrighteous? Either a sheep or a goat? And if you see them that way, then as a sheep, you should be drawn to all the sheep. Or you should be drawn to the goats to help them become sheep. That's how we should see one another. Because that's all that matters. Notice that who the judge will be. The judge on that day will be none other than Jesus himself. J.C. Ryle writes this, Let believers think on this, that Jesus will be the judge, and take comfort. He that sits upon the throne in that great and dreadful day will be their savior, their shepherd, their high priest, their friend. When they see him, they will have no cause to be alarmed. Let unconverted people think of this and be afraid. Their judge will be that very Christ whose gospel they now despise and whose gracious invitations they refuse to hear. To be condemned in the day of judgment by anyone would be awful, but to be condemned by him who would have saved them will be awful indeed. True? It's Jesus who is the judge. A comfort for Christians but a horror for those who've rejected and despised the one who loves them. I can't think of anything that would be more painful than to be said to hear, depart from me. I never knew you by one who would have saved you if you had believed. Some are troubled by this. They say, well, Jesus didn't come. Jesus didn't come to condemn. Jesus didn't come to judge. The scriptures even say that. Jesus himself says that. Does, it, does he not? And to this we say true. But we must understand the nature of his comings, his first and his second. If we look at the Gospel of John, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 47, Jesus says this, If anyone hears my words and believes not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus is talking about him at that time. He says, look, I'm here to preach. I'm here not to condemn. I'm not here to judge. I'm here to save. I know the judgment day is coming. If you don't believe in me, I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to save. But he goes on to say this, He that rejects me and receives not my words has one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Jesus sees a day in the future when a man will be judged. And as he's filling in the details now, it will be by the judgment of the Son of Man. The first coming he came to save and not to judge. 
But the second coming will be different when Jesus comes to execute wrath upon the ungodly and unbelievers, but to bring salvation to those who did believe his word. In the book of Acts chapter 10, the Apostle Peter says explicitly that God, that Jesus will judge. Acts 10 verse 42 and God commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God, Christ, to be the judge of the quick and the dead. And the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, says this, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance unto all men in that he has raised him from the dead. So God has appointed Christ to judge on that day And how will he judge according to the Apostle Paul? In unrighteousness? Will he grade on the curve? Will he judge based upon what color shirt you're wearing? Whether you got his badge on you? He will judge in righteousness, Paul says. That's going to be his judgment. Righteousness. And let's keep that in mind as we look now in Matthew 25 to how Jesus will judge. Look at verse 34. Jesus first addresses those on his right hand. Matthew 25, verse 34. The king shall say to those on his right hand, Come. First we might ask, why does he address the ones on his right hand first? Why not the ones on his left? And this is uh, maybe not an important question, perhaps just speculation. It could be nothing. But I think that Jesus addresses those on his right hand because of his excitement and because of the pain of speaking to those on his left. The excitement of speaking to those on his right and the pain of speaking to those on his left. He addresses the righteous first. John Gill writes this. I think he captures this beautifully. He calls them in the most tender and endearing manner and yet with the majesty of a king and the authority of a judge to come near unto him. Wouldn't you agree that his words here have tenderness endearment, but yet authority and kingly majesty. In the Greek, come means come here or come to me. He invites them to come to himself and he calls them blessed. It reminds us of the Beatitudes when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, you are blessed and he, he speaks to them before men and before angels and he confesses them as blessed. He tells them, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The kingdom is what, on that day, we will enter finally, no longer just through faith, believing that we are true citizens of the kingdom, which we are right now, but then we will actually, by sight and by actual experience, be in the kingdom of God with Jesus Christ reigning. And, it's, and Jesus says that the kingdom has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. A very important truth here. Think about this. Before the creation of the world, what was God thinking? Was the kingdom of God for, for men an afterthought to God? Was he, did he create the world and say, I'm going to see what happens here when I create the stars and I'm going to see what happens here when I create the animals. Oh, they sinned against me. I think I'm going to see what happens here when I choose Abraham. No, not according to Jesus. According to Jesus, before God even created the world, he had prepared a kingdom for men. This is what God was after from the very beginning. He was after 
a kingdom that he could invite his creation into. It was his plan all along. God ruling over man and man blessed because of that rule. And apparently to God, this was worth creating the world with all of its pain and all of its sorrow. God sees it as worth it to do this. Prepared from the foundation of the world, enter you blessed of my Father. And why are they said to come in? Why are they invited? Why are they judged this way? And the answer we have in verse 35 and 36, this is the reason, and I want to make this very clear. The reason why they come into the kingdom is because of what they did with Jesus Christ. And don't miss that. It's what they did with Jesus, which is what it all depends, upon which everything depends. What they did with Jesus. Now this passage, as probably many of you know, has been famously twisted, has it not? Famously twisted to argue that salvation is based upon our good works. Salvation is based upon our humanitarian endeavors. Right? Have you ever heard that before? See, I don't care what the Christians say, some say. I don't care what the Protestants say. I don't care what the Reformations say. I don't care what Paul said. I don't care about your verses that you can quote that salvation is by grace, not by works. Jesus said that if you don't help the poor and help the sick and help those who are needy, you know, then you're not going to be saved. And it's because you help the poor and it's because you help the sick that you're going to be saved. People argue that you don't even need to believe in Jesus according to this verse. You just help the poor and help the needy and it's like you're serving Jesus even if you don't even know Jesus. And you'll find out on that day, oh, I was really serving Jesus all along. Humanitarian endeavors. Philanthropy. General philanthropy for all men. This, these verses are famously quoted uh, by organizations who want Christians to donate money to help the poor, which is not a bad cause. But should these verses be appealed to And I want to say this morning that such reasoning, that Jesus is really not talking about salvation through him, salvation through faith, but it's really just about loving your neighbor in a general kind of way, is an absolute perversion of what Jesus is talking about. It's a perversion of the gospel, and it's missing the entire point that this is all about Jesus. Everything here depends on how you treat Jesus, not your neighbor in general. This is not about how you treat your neighbor in general and lo and behold, later on, you find out it was about Jesus. This is all about him. And how you treat your, not just your neighbor in general as we're going to see here, how you treat those that he's talking about reveals your attitude towards Jesus. The point is explicitly made in the next uh, verses, verse 37 to 40. Then the righteous shall say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did you were thirsty and when did we give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and took you in or naked and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Who is the focus here? Jesus. In fact, he was saying, you fed me. You visited me. Me, me. Just highlight all the times it says, me and I, me and I, me and I. And they say, when did we see you, 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 you? It's all about you. And in verse 40 he says, Truly I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. This is about him. Jesus calls them here 
righteous in verse 37. And we know that the only way to be righteous is not by our good deeds, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And verse 40 is the key. And I want to draw your attention to a very important word here, and that is the word brethren. In verse 40, brethren is the most important word in this verse. Because if Jesus were just talking about humanitarian endeavors toward all men in general, he would not limit the people that he has in mind here to brethren. He would say, in as much as you have done it to the poor, or in as much as you have done it to the neighbor, to man. But he says, in as much as you have done it to my brethren, and that's the critical thing, not in general, but to this group in specific, you've done it unto me. And who are his brethren? Who do you think his brethren are? Because how you treat them shows your attitude towards Jesus. The brethren, if you... Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Jesus has already said who the brethren are. And then after Matthew chapter 12, verse 48, I'd like to show you a few other verses where this very same thought that Jesus is speaking about, this very same idea in Matthew 25, has already come up in his teachings. Matthew chapter 12, verse 48. This is when Jesus is teaching in a house. And his mother and his brothers come to the door and they are trying to get his attention. And someone comes to Jesus and says, your mom and your brothers are outside wanting to talk to you, Jesus. And in verse 48, Jesus answers and says unto them, who is my mother and who are my brethren? Great question as it applies to Matthew 25. He stretches forth his hand toward his disciples. The disciples are those who are learning from Jesus, listening from Jesus. Jesus is their teacher and they're accepting his teaching. Behold my mother and my brethren, for whoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. So now Jesus clarifies, who's his brethren? Who is his brethren? It's the disciples. It's those who learn from him. It's those who do the will of the Father. And what is the will of the Father? As we know from other scriptures, the will of the Father is for everyone who hears the Son and sees the Son and listens to the Son, the will of the Father is for them to believe and have eternal life. The will of the Father is for man to listen to the Son and to believe. And those who do, Jesus declares, are his brethren. So now we know that how you treat the disciples of Jesus reveals your attitude towards Jesus himself. Let's flesh this out some more. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. And look at verse 5 and verse 6. And Jesus is now again talking about his disciples and he calls his disciples little ones. He calls his disciples little ones. Just like in Matthew 25, the least of these my brethren. And I want you to notice in Matthew 25, he says, Inasmuch as you have done it to one, and this is a very important word in that, in that verse in Matthew 25, he uses the numerical value of one. Inasmuch as you have done it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. I want you to notice the similarities here in Matthew 18, verse 5 and 6, and see that this is not a new thought. Whoso shall receive how many? One such little child in my name receives me. In the context, the little child is a believer in Christ. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones, notice again, the numeric one comes up. This is the same idea. 
which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the midst of the sea. Look at verse 5. Whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receives who? You receive the child, you receive Jesus. Nothing new here in Matthew 25. Mark chapter 9, Jesus says this in Mark chapter 9, verse 37. In the same context, he adds one more person in the mix. In Mark 9, 37, he says, Whoever shall receive one of such children in my name receives me, and whoever shall receive me receives not me, but the one who sent me, which is his Father. If you reject Jesus, who are you really rejecting? Now, there are a lot of people in this world who reject Jesus, but they claim not to reject God, correct? There's a lot of religious people in this world who claim to have a relationship with God and to know God and to be with God on God's good side, and they reject Jesus. Now, according to Jesus, have they only rejected Jesus, or have they also rejected God? They've also rejected God, for God is revealed in Jesus, is he not? And so to reject Jesus is to reject God. And where is Jesus revealed? I mean, you and I can't just go down the street to the house down the block and go to Jesus' house, knock on the door and see what we think, right? Jesus is revealed to us through the disciples. Jesus is revealed, revealed to us through the apostles and through the disciples who believe in Jesus and teach Jesus and proclaim Jesus. And to reject the disciples is not to reject the disciples alone. It's to reject Jesus Jesus says this over and over and over again to the apostles and to the disciples. Whoever rejects you rejects not you, but me. Right? They're not just rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And they're rejecting the Father. What you do to them, you do to me. And turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. This is when Jesus sends out the apostles to preach the gospel And here's what he says in Matthew 10, verse 40. He that receives you receives me. He that receives me receives him that sent me. He that receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He that receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever, and notice the similar language here, whoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, truly I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. You see, when Jesus is talking about, I was naked and you came visit me, I was thirsty and you gave me drink, I was, I was hungry and you gave me food, I was naked and you clothed me, he's not talking about philanthropy in general. He's talking about how you treat the disciples of Christ. Do you see those disciples in need? And when you see them in need, do you, are you drawn to them in the name of a disciple? This isn't just humanitarian, because lots of people could see a Christian in need and just go help them because they're a human being. But this is, you're helping them because they're a disciple. This is a disciple of Jesus. This is someone who's preaching Jesus Christ. And you draw near to them and help them, because you're not offended by the gospel. You're not offended by the preaching of righteousness through faith. In fact, that draws you to them, to help them and to assist them. I'm going to give you a cup of cold water because you're a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus says, that person 
will surely not lose their reward. Do you remember when we studied 1 John, when we talked about loving the brothers? Brothers and sisters, what Jesus is saying here is what John is talking about in 1 John, about loving the brothers. We, do, we, we love the brothers. That is, we love those who have believed in Jesus. We love them for righteousness' sake, and we do not hate them because they're disciples of Jesus. Like Cain hated Abel, because Abel was accepted freely by God. Abel was a sinner like Cain, accepted freely by God without any works, and Cain hated him for that. We as Christians are not like Cain. We as Christians love those who are accepted for righteousness' sake and who preach righteousness by faith. You see, some people take this and think, well, you know why Christians are persecuted? We're persecuted because of our stand on homosexuality, right? See, we say homosexuality is a sin, we say that, and then the world hates us for that. The world hates us Christians because of our stand on homosexuality. Well, I have news for people who think like that. That's shallow. Because first of all, there are a lot of non-Christians who don't hate you because of your stand on homosexuality. They'll stand hand in hand with you and say, Amen. We agree with you. The Pharisees in Jesus' day also didn't believe in homosexuality. And they hated the guts of Jesus. It's not because of our stand on ethical issues like this or that that we're hated as Christians, but it is for righteousness' sake and righteousness' sake alone that we incur the wrath of the world, not just uh, those quote, quote, bad sinners out there, but by all the world, including the most religious, the self-righteous. This is where the persecution comes. I was talking to a man on the street uh, yesterday when we went to general conference, completely random person off the street, and I was sharing with him about righteousness through faith. And this man was arguing against that. And he was, he was saying, that can't be, I don't agree with that, it's wrong. You see, he was just an average man on the street and I, I, I experienced that all the time, you see. Some people might say that uh, a Christian stand against homosexuality is wrong, but all men who are not Christians will stand against righteousness through faith. This is the whole issue. This is what Jesus is all about, as we've talked about over and over in Matthew. Jesus stands for, he preaches true and perfect righteousness that can only come through faith and not by works. If you hear that, you're hearing from the true Jesus. If you hate that, you're rejecting the true Jesus and you're rejecting God. How do you treat the disciples? Do you embrace them or repel them for this message? And so therefore, it all comes down to the gospel message itself. The nature of the king. R.T. France says this about Matthew 25. The criterion of judgment becomes not mere philanthropy, but men's response to the kingdom of heaven as it is presented to them in the person of Jesus' brothers. It is therefore ultimately a question of their relationship to Jesus himself. Charles Erdman writes, It is absurd to conclude that our Savior here teaches that eternal life can be secured by being kind to the poor regardless of any relationship to Him. George Eldon Ladd, another New Testament scholar, writes, This teaching sets forth the solidarity between Jesus and His disciples as He sends them forth into the world with the good news of the kingdom. And as we read in the Bible, the disciples who preach the gospel are persecuted And how do men respond to these disciples? Do they embrace them or reject them? Do they help them or do they forsake them? It all has to do with the gospel 
and their behavior manifests their attitude towards Jesus. Does that make sense? Verse 41. Now we have the opposite. Jesus says to those on his left, and you can hear the pain in his voice when he says, Depart from me. He called the others to come to him. Now he says, Depart from me. Everything is the opposite here. Depart from me, not you blessed, but you cursed. Not into the kingdom, but into everlasting fire that was prepared from the foundation of the world, not for you, but for the devil and his angels. Here we see that everlasting fire was not prepared for men, but for the devil and his angels and those who reject the gospel forfeit what God had originally prepared for mankind at the beginning, before he created the world. When God created the world, he saw men being ruled by him and blessed by him in the kingdom and the devil and his angels in hell. And yet those who follow the devil will go to that place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. This is all part of God's eternal plan. And why, verse 42 and 43, the same answer is given because of what they did with Jesus. This isn't about philanthropy. Because of what they did with Jesus. If it was just about philanthropy, according to this passage, all you need to do is help one person and you will inherit the kingdom of God. But this isn't about philanthropy at all, in a general sense, but our response to Jesus. Notice it's what they didn't do. Just like in the previous parables, they didn't provide oil, they didn't do anything with their talent. Here it's not a sin of commission, but of omission. They rejected Christ by rejecting the disciples. Not sins in general here, but the sin of rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the point is made explicit once again in verse 45. Truly I say unto you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, his brothers, which is implied, you did not do it to me. What you do with them shows your attitude towards Christ. And in verse 46, now in closing, I'd like you to notice the end result as to whether you reject the disciples, Christ and God, or whether you embrace the disciples, Christ and God. Whether you reject the gospel or whether you embrace the gospel. The Bible here, through the words of Jesus Christ, gives us the end result of this judgment. There's only two categories of people, sheep and goats, and there's only two places that men will ultimately end up going. Eternal punishment and fire or eternal life. Here we see that Jesus himself teaches eternal punishment. Not a popular idea in our world today. But here it is. Jesus says, these shall go away into everlasting punishment. Some try to minimize the word everlasting by saying, well, everlasting is just the quality of the punishment, not the duration of the punishment. It's not going to last forever but then you would have to apply the same to the eternal life. That it's just the quality of eternal life, but it won't last forever. You're going to enjoy eternal life for a while and then it's going to end. Clearly here it is not talking about mere quality, but duration of time, which the Greek word does signify. And he talks here of fire 
Jesus has spoken at length already about fire. In his parables, in his explanations of the parables in chapter 13, he talks about men being thrown into a furnace of fire. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, it's better for you to cut out your eye and cut off your arm than for you to go to hell fire. Jesus says you should fear God who can destroy the body and the soul in hell fire. It's real and it's horrible, brothers and sisters, and all mankind. It's horrible and real and it's eternal and you don't want to go there. On the other hand, we have eternal life, which is the opposite of eternal punishment. It's the reward of righteousness. It's the blessing that comes from being righteous in Jesus Christ. The eternal life that flows from being in Him. It's blessedness. It's real and it's wonderful. And I think we have no way of wrapping our minds around how blessed and how horrible these two end states will be. If you think that you've wrapped your mind around it and you think you know what it's going to be like, you don't. It's going to be worse and it's going to be better than what you can possibly imagine. And it's final. They are sent to eternal punishment or to eternal life. This is final. There's no going back. There's no second chance. There's no getting out. So we must be sure where we will end up. Correct. Although I don't, that's a bit speculative. But what we need to be is sure where we're going to end up. And the whole issue here is not philanthropy in general. If you take that away from this passage and then go try to just be a good person in a general sense, then you will perish. Because this isn't about you and your neighbor. It's about Jesus Christ and the gospel. And it's all about righteousness. Righteous or unrighteous. The separation between those two categories depends on what you do with Jesus Christ. Notice the centrality of Jesus in this passage. He is the one who's coming. He is the one who judges. And what we do with him determines our eternal destiny. What we know, brothers and sisters, in this morning, we proclaim as Christians that righteousness is by faith. And how men will respond to that message reveals how they respond to Christ. It's our task as the church to preach the gospel into all the world, as Jesus says. And he commissioned us and said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation. Those who receive your message shall be saved. Those who reject your message shall be damned. In closing, I'd like to read from John chapter 15, verse 17 to 20. These things I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I have said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. 
So brothers and sisters, let us fearlessly proclaim the gospel of righteousness through faith alone to a hostile world and let us love one another for righteousness' sake. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have through Jesus Christ. We thank you that you loved us so much, even though we were unrighteous and sinful, that you sent Christ to be the sin-bearer of the world. And we thank you that it's a free gift, even if the world hates us and thinks it's foolishness and despises us on this account. Lord, we believe your word of righteousness. And we thank you for it. We thank you for the hope and the peace and the joy that the gospel brings to us. And we pray that we would be fearless in the face of all hostility to preach that gospel wherever we are, in our city here in Logan. Lord, that uh, we would just accept the fact that men will hate us and not try to be men-pleasers. And I also pray, Lord, that you would give us a greater vision of the fact that if we've believed in you, that we are your sheep and that we're all together in one category and that we would see each other through the eyes of faith and love each other for righteousness' sake. And Lord, we give you praise for how awesome you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.